Welcome to Out of the Arts with Beth and Amy. We will help you bridge the gap between an arts career and a career outside the arts industry. Knowledge is power, and attorney Ben Jacobson is teaching class. He's studied history, sound design, and dramaturgy in undergrad. After school, he started working as a counterterrorism analyst and is now an attorney supporting the state of Illinois. His ability to analyze, build narratives, and make connections are just some of the skills that allowed him to successfully navigate his career change. Visit us at outofthearts.com for more free job transition resources. Make sure to check out our services tab for personalized support options. Join us for today's talk with Ben about how you can continue to share ideas and tell stories even after you've left the theater. Hi, Ben. It's so nice to have you. I'm so excited. Yeah, it's so great to be here. For the audience, just so you guys know, I've known Ben since 2009. That's probably right. Yeah, it's when I went to Illinois. You were there first. I was. I was. So Ben was an undergrad, and I was a graduate student. Your undergrad is in theater? I started off in the theater program at Illinois as a sound design major, but ended up switching partway through to get a history major, and then minoring in theater. The first theater minor at University of Illinois, the theater history professor, Peter Davis, had been trying to get a theater minor approved for years. And that was the year that it got approved. And super conveniently, I was there. So it worked out really nicely. Especially at that point, because you've probably taken so many of the classes anyways. Yes. I basically didn't need to take any classes that I wasn't or that I either hadn't taken or wasn't planning to take anyway. Yeah. And you're doing something very different in your life right now. Give us a little rundown. What are you doing now? Where are you currently? Sure. So in some ways, I'm doing something very different, but in some ways, it's very much the same. I am an attorney now in Chicago. I work for the Illinois Attorney General's Office in their Civil Appeals Division. And of course, disclaimer, I'm here in my personal capacity. Nothing that I say is a reflection of the opinion of the attorney general's office, et cetera, et cetera. So I do civil appeals and my office handles any case that involves the state that doesn't have criminal matters involved. So, and we step in when things go up on appeal. You've got the trial court, which is most of what you see on TV and in the media judge, jury, objection, all of that. And once you have a decision there, if one side is unhappy, they can then appeal that up to the next level. And we step in at that point because it functions completely differently from the trial court. If you know anything about how the U.S. Supreme Court works, you've got kind of a panel of judges standing in front of each attorney taking a turn to kind of talk to them. That's how appellate courts work in general. Cool. So do you, are you in the courtroom? Are you arguing for or against people? Or are you, because I know lawyers do a whole bunch of different things in real life. Yeah. Like what does Uh, that mean for you? We do a little bit of arguing in the court, but most of our job is 
writing briefs. So the way that an appeal functions is the person who is unhappy with the trial court's decision appeals it up to the files an appeal in the appellate court. And then each side files a brief just explaining why you think the trial court was wrong or why you think they were right. And then if the appellate court thinks that it's worthwhile, they will then hold what's called an oral argument. And that's what you have in the Supreme Court that I was talking about. So you stand up before a panel of judges who are going to be the ones deciding. And each side gets 15, 20 minutes-ish and just has a conversation with the judges to try and help them answer the questions that they have based off of your briefs. And then with the briefs and with the oral argument and the legal research that the judges then do on their own, they decide whether to reverse the lower court, affirm the lower court, do something in the middle. That's mostly my job. But I mean, the vast majority of what I do is the briefing because only a small percentage of cases are actually argued. So tell me, you may not know this, but I actually am a paralegal and I'm in New York State. But one of the attorneys that I worked with was in the family law area, the the sort of uh, appeals, you can't say specialist, but was the appeals person in the office when an appeal came in. And I know a lot of what goes into a brief and an argument and all of that. Can you talk about how that actually relates to your theater background and your sound design and production background? Because there's definitely a correlation there, I think. Totally. So I think there a little more explanation on my background is also needed because I actually, while I was in undergrad, discovered dramaturgy and dramaturgy became kind of what I really wanted to do. And it, you know, it fit really nicely with being a history major. Research and writing is kind of the thing that I've always enjoyed doing the most. Mm. So I think the biggest tie to my theater background is with dramaturgy. But I also think with sound design, a lot of sound design is analytical. You have to try and translate words on a page into sounds and figure out how to build a world or fill out a world with sound. And then there's also like the highly technical aspects of the the engineering part of sound design, which was always my weaker side. But I, I think having that that experience of thinking about the world in a way that incorporated more aspects of what's going on was really, really helpful. And also the kind of unique textual analysis that any kind of theater designer has to do is really helpful because it helps me try and look at the words on the page in a a more holistic way, 
and then the experience of trying to translate in and out of sound on and off the page, I think is also really helpful because a, one of the biggest things you can do as, an, as a lawyer is try to find a way to explain complex legal issues in a way that's simple and understandable to anyone. And so the unique textual analysis and how to translate things, both as a sound designer and a dramaturg, I think were, were really, really important in helping me be able to do that. I love you said you have to build a world. And while we know it's true, you know, whether you're a sound designer, whether you are a set designer, whether you're a performer, whether you're a dancer, whether you're the director, no matter where you are in performing arts, you're building a world from legitimately nothing. You maybe have words on a page. You maybe have music. But that doesn't necessarily mean you have the world. And so building that world, and maybe that is why I find people who come out of a creative background are really good about digging into problems. Because we we don't just look at, oh, here's my little, here's my little bubble. It's, okay, I might be the sound designer and I really want to put a speaker here, but there's no box for me to put the speaker in. How do I get a box here? I have to work with the set designer. I have to work with the director. I have to work with these eight other people. Maybe I'm building it myself, whatever that means. So this concept of coming out of an arts background and being able to build a world and then translate that skill. One of the hardest things for me coming out of that arts background was trying to find a way to explain to people outside of the arts world why I was going to be worthwhile in their industry. So I've spent a lot of time, you know, at this point, a, a decade, thinking about that and, re and refining it and changing it. And it took me a long time to really craft that into a fully coherent answer. So what is your pitch? Like if you're talking to somebody, you are applying for a new job. I think the number one thing that you have to do when you're applying for a new job, and this goes for anyone anywhere, is find out what the mission or the purpose or the main focus of the organization that you're applying to is. Because all of your answers need to be tailored to that. So very in a very lawyerly fashion, I'm going to caveat and my answer, it depends on what the organization is. But the biggest thing I do is try and take that tie of research and analysis and whatever the kind of analysis is and thinking through complex problems and weave that through my career and then point to how that is important where I'm going to work based on their mission. I think that a lot of people even have a hard time getting to the point where they can even make that. Like, you can make it in your cover letter, you can make that argument, especially in the arts industry. We make so many new jobs and we make so many next steps because of relationships we're building. How have you best navigated making those new relationships? Uh, luck. Uh, I mean, honestly, a lot of it is luck. So when 
I graduated from undergrad. I moved back to Chicago and my plan was to be a dramaturg. You're from there, right? I'm from Evanston. So I, I grew up just outside of Chicago. And within a couple of months, I quickly realized that theater was a very serious passion of mine, but it wasn't a career. I think the biggest thing for me was I hate looking for work. And when you're in theater, you're always unemployed. You're always unemployed. And I just, I couldn't keep doing that. I couldn't constantly be looking for new gigs. And, you know, there was the prospect of eventually maybe getting to be the literary director at a theater company. But like, how far down the line was that? And how likely was that to happen? The stability aspect of it, I think, was the biggest thing for me. But a big part of stability is also pay. So, you know, when I got when I got my job offer from the government, it was like four times as much as I had ever made in theater. And they were like, are you going to be willing to accept this? And I was like, oh, my God, that's more money than I've ever made in my life. <laughs> yes more money in one year that I've made cumulatively throughout my career until this point. It was the stability <laughs> aspect of money in that sense, but it, it was more, I just didn't want to be unemployed all the time, even when I was employed. Power to everyone who does it and loves it and wants to keep doing it. It wasn't for me. And I started thinking about what it was that I was really, what I actually enjoyed about the work that I had been doing. And the biggest thing was research and analysis. And I had kind of vaguely understood that the federal government hired analysts to do stuff. Yeah. And so I started doing some research online and I got lucky because I mentioned to my thesis advisor that that's what I was thinking about doing. And she said, oh, hey, you know what my sister does? That connection helped me get past that initial stage of the application to get an interview because my thesis advisor had recommended several people to her sister and her sister's organization before, and they'd all panned out really well. So, you know, I applied to about 60-60 jobs across the federal government doing analysis in a ton of different areas. And... I got one interview and that interview was with the office where I, I had the connection that let them move past that resume that said theater, theater, theater. And I was very lucky I got that job. So I spent three years as a counterterrorism analyst for the Department of Defense, which was really cool and really interesting. I got to do a lot of stuff that I never thought I would ever do. A lot of the time I got to feel like I was doing important, meaningful work because our, our, the mission of my agency was to protect U.S. service members wherever they were in the world from terrorist attacks. And so no matter what your political orientation is, I think we can all agree that we don't want our service members to get hurt or die. And so um, it was a really nice, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was a really nice apolitical position. Uh, and I felt like I was getting to, be, to do meaningful work. And that was what led me to go into law because 
I noticed that the people that decision makers were listening to the most were lawyers or had legal backgrounds. And I wanted to come back into that world as an attorney to be a force for legal good in that world, both and, you know, facilitating the analysts being able to to do their job as best as possible within the confines of the law. Did you totally like quit your job and go to law school? Did you do law school at night? Like, how does that work? I chose to quit my job and go to law school. So uh, I went to Georgetown for law school. I was living in D.C. Georgetown has a, a really fantastic national security law program. I decided that I wanted to dedicate my my entire focus to law school. And, you know, I recognized that I had the privilege to be able to afford to do that, both because of the my, my parents and how I grew up and my job for the government paid decently. So I, I was lucky enough to be able to make that choice. I was unmarried. I didn't have any kids. So it was very easy for me to do that. Georgetown does have a, a night school program. That's very, very good. A lot of law schools do. Several of my colleagues actually at the time were doing that, were going through law school and hearing them talk about it. You know, they worked almost always more than 40 hours a week at the job. And then it was like three or four nights a week, you go to class from like five or six to nine or 10 o'clock. And law school homework is not the easiest. It's a lot of heavy reading. And then papers and exams are not easy. When we started, you said that you just got lucky finding the right people. But at the same time, you made those relationships. Like, So you reached out to them and said, hey, I'm thinking about this. What do you think? You didn't, you didn't shy away from having that conversation because you thought that they might be disappointed or worried or whatever. Like you just walked into it. So on one hand, maybe luck. But on the other hand, you put yourself out there, which is terrifying. But the only way you know this is one of the things that out of the arts can do best for people is provide a safe space where you can make those connections because it's one thing to cold reach out to an attorney who's never met you and has no connection to you who works in the field that you want to work in and it's another thing to reach out to someone through this group or have someone in the group be like, oh, I know the other person who does this. You should talk to them. And connections really are such a huge part of success in life. Everyone who works in the arts knows that. I mean, how many of your gigs came about because the person you worked with two years ago really liked the work that you did on that show and they want you to work on their new show. And it's the same, it's the same thing in law. You find out that the judge that you're clerking for worked with someone at an office when he was an attorney right out of law school that you now want to work in. And so he makes that connection. And I think that is really one of the biggest things. And that's one of the hardest things for people, and just talking from, from the, law, the law world, for people who don't have a background in law who 
you know, they don't have any parents who went to law school. They don't have any relatives who went to law school. They don't have any friends. And so it's not a part of that isn't a part of their life. It's especially difficult for them. And it's why the legal community has remained predominantly middle and upper class white men. And, you know, that's changing slowly, very, very slowly. My first law firm was two female partners and one male attorney in the entire office out of seven. And now I'm with a new firm and it's just the three of us now. We're a startup firm, but I work for two black female attorneys. They're definitely out there and they do really great work. And I'm so glad to see more women and women of color coming up in the industry and being supported because it for a very long time and for the most part still is a, a very much old white male centric industry. It totally is. And I mean, you know, I recognize that that has benefited me as a white male. And, you know, I, I do appreciate that my specific office is majority female. Things are changing and hopefully for the good. And, you know, there are a lot of initiatives out there to try and help speed up that change to make things more equitable um, within the legal world in particular is what I'm, I'm aware of. Um, but they're out there. And um, hopefully uh, things will get better. <laughs> yeah, I have a question. Mm-hmm. Do you find, you kind of hit on it before, that you constantly have to explain or rationalize what you do in a way and I feel like that's very similar in the arts as well there's always a stigma or an assumption that goes along with the term lawyer or attorney just as there is with coming from a theater background do you find that that's often a case for you I I don't uh you know I think part of that again has to do with the world that I grew up in and the circles that I move in, you know, my, my dad's a lawyer. His dad was a lawyer. I have other lawyers in my family. I knew a lot of other kids who had parents who were lawyers and, you know, a lot of my world now is the legal community. Uh, a lot of my closest friends are from law school uh, and from my current job. So I I don't feel like I have to justify being a lawyer. I think the more it might be having to justify the specific kind of law that I do. So, you know, originally I wanted to go back into the national security world at the federal level. And, you know, there, there can be a stigma, especially associated with the post 9-11 world and how the reach of government has increased quite a lot in the wake of that. And so I would find myself sometimes having to justify going back into that world or being in that world at all. And, you know, now I work for the state government, which I love and I think it's great and we do a ton of great work. But when you're an attorney, you're never maybe not never, but it's highly likely that you're going to end up arguing positions that you don't necessarily agree with, even if it's what the law says, and even if you know that you're legally correct, and it's what is right for your client. 
Um, and so you, you can end up having to justify, you know, working for an establishment entity as opposed to doing something that's more for the little guy, I guess. But one of the things I love about working for the Illinois Attorney General's office is through being the state actor, we do get the opportunity to help the little guy in a lot of ways that you wouldn't expect. You know, my office handles appeals from agency decisions. So for instance, the unemployment agency, the Illinois has a human rights commission that handles alleged abuses under the Illinois Human Rights Act, which is in many ways very similar to the civil rights statutes that we typically think of the Title VII, Title IX area. So we defend the agency decision no matter which way the agency went. And so often we are on the side of the person who was told that they do deserve unemployment benefits and the the business that they used to work for, who's then on the hook for paying some of that, appeals that decision. One of the things that we do in our job is trying to make sure that the process is working properly. Even when we're opposing that party, we, as the institutional state actor, are also there to ensure that things are working properly. And I really like that about my job. Yeah. It sounds like your your goal is really to help the little guys, whatever whatever that means in different scenarios. Is that how you currently define success for yourself? And if not, you know, what do you think of as success? I'm sure it's changed since 2009. I know mine has. So, so what does that look like for you? I wouldn't define my success as narrowly as helping the little guy. I think that's one part of it. Um, I think that's one of the thing, one of the the pillars of success and one of the things that I enjoy about my job. But another is helping ensure that the Illinois state government functions because there's a lot of litigation involving the state, unsurprising. And a big part of what we do is ensure that the government isn't being impeded from doing what it can and should do. And there's kind of those dual aspects of working for a government is one, you are working for the people. And so ensuring that the, the people are being represented and, and benefited the way that they're supposed to, but then at the same time, ensuring that, the government is able to function and do what it's supposed to do. And I mean, you know, the two are intertwined because the state government is a representation of the people and government is supposed to function for the people. But those are kind of my two, my two things are, you know, ensuring that I'm working for the people and that I'm, facilitating the, the the government's functionality. I can't imagine that in doing all of this, you have a ton of free time, but <laughs> I'm wondering if, 
Are you still involved in the arts at all in any way? And if so, how? As Beth may also know, one of the best things about working for government is that there are restrictions typically on the hours that you work. Mm -hmm. And that's not quite the same for lawyers, but I generally work, I don't know, between 40 and 45 hours a week. You know, there are some weeks where I work quite a lot more than that. Some of those are going to be coming up because I have a couple of big cases. But most of the time, I, I work a fairly normal nine to five, which I really like. And it's one of the reasons I have wanted to work for government is the all hours of the day crazy life is one of the things that I found too grinding from the theater world. So I, I do actually have, I guess, a normal-ish amount of free time. Currently, I'm not doing a ton with the arts world. Um, I want to do more. My, my wife is also a former theater professional. She was an, an actress here in Chicago hmm. um, for several years. And, you know, before the pandemic and all of that insanity, we were going to see a lot of theater together, um, which we really appreciated. It was one of the things we bonded over. So, okay. I, you know, I, I would love to be able to go see theater again. And, you know, I, I, would be interested in getting involved in the arts community again. I'm just not sure yet how to do that with my life. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. When, once I was out of it, I didn't continue with a lot of the sound design and engineering stuff. Um, I did, I did it during law school, which was a lot of fun. What did you Oh. At Georgetown, there's a very, very active Gilbert and Sullivan Society <laughs> for the law school specifically. I'm familiar with this, actually. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's crazy. So, like, so Georgetown Law is the law campus is separate from main campus. So it's kind of this own world unto itself. And it has a very long tradition of theatrical performance. You know, there's a lot of people who come out of theater backgrounds and go into law for many reasons. I mean, a lot of uh, there's a lot of former actors and actresses, and I think it attracts people who enjoy thinking about how worlds can be created and built and how to think through that. So do you think having the theater background actually helped you get into Georgetown? Like, is that a thing? You know, I maybe I think the biggest thing for me was my national security background, being an analyst, because I specifically wanted to go to Georgetown because of its national security program and then go back into that world. So, you know, I had this really great argument to say, you know, I know what it means to be an analyst. And so I know what they need and what they don't need. And I want to then come back as a lawyer and help them do that. So I think that was probably the biggest thing, but I don't think, I, at the very least, I don't think my theater background hindered me. One of the biggest things you can do when you're applying for anything is have your narrative, mm -hmm. whatever that narrative is. But you know, I worked my narrative to explain how I went from theater and history to being an analyst, to wanting to be a lawyer. 
And I think that is one of the biggest things that, at least in the, the legal world, is really key, is you, you have to have your narrative for where you've come from, why it brought you here, and why that's a benefit to wherever you're applying to. There's a masterclass commercial, and I don't know if it's like on something I scroll through or whatever, but one of the commercials for the masterclass thing is like, one is one of the guys who talks about selling and about being selling yourself. And he says, if you are existing, you are selling. He says, you are constantly having to sell yourself and make pitches. And it's not a bad thing. It's just how we are as people. We need to know that what we're getting into makes sense for the duration of the time that it'll be a relationship. I want to know that my jelly donut's going to be a real great jelly donut until I'm finished eating it. I think that that's a good concept of a short relationship, I guess. So that just made me think of, of that commercial where everybody's selling something. And it's okay. And so having your pitch, having your narrative, having your you know, elevator speech of this is why I'm amazing. And yes, my history makes me amazing for this reason. It's a good thing. Yes. This is exactly what we do with our resume services as well. Because everyone comes with a different story and a different background, different experience. And that's okay. You don't have to have 40 years in one industry to get the job. You just need to have a strong sense of self and an identity that says, this is who I am, this is what I do, this is what I can do, this is what I want to do. And when you put all of those pieces together and you tell this story, that's what makes a strong resume, that's what makes a strong employee, that's what makes a loyal employee. It all comes together. It's all the same same thing. It all comes down to storytelling. Yes. And I think that is actually explicitly one of the, the things that I used in my storytelling uh, for all of my interviews and stuff like that. And you can call it story. It, it is storytelling. It's And I, I like the word narrative, but it, it is all storytelling. We are constantly telling stories about ourselves. And I think that's one of the most powerful things you can take from an arts background, because no matter what art you're doing, you're telling a story with your art. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much what you're doing in most jobs, I think, is you're telling a story in a different way. And for me, that was one of the things that drew me to analysis. And it's one of the things that drew me to doing the law. In analysis and law, your stories are based on facts. You're not telling fiction. You're, you're telling nonfiction, but you're telling persuasive nonfiction. Well, and even as a dramaturg, you're telling truths about that period about the characters as you know them to have existed even though it's a it's a fake story it's based on something that needs to be conceptually very real or it doesn't work right exactly exactly it needs to be relatable in one way or another whether it's an idea a philosophy a creed or a character all of these things need to be in some way real for people to be able to connect and understand. I know all of us have done this. Movies or things that we see and either the character doesn't make sense or there's this piece of setting and where the hell did that come from and how did we get here? 
Like, that's the first thing we pick apart. Yeah. Because it takes you out of the story. Yep. So, so whether you're using it, you know, in theater or you're using it in law or you're using it in marketing and communications as you're telling those stories, like all of these are about creating strong narratives, finding truths. It's a very strong connection. How do you think we can help other industries see this connection better? That is a very good and very tough question. (laughs) I think one of the biggest things we can be doing is putting these stories out there by promoting the stories of people who have transitioned out of the arts and by showing and explaining how and why an arts background is valuable when you put the when you put it out there it'll start resonating and i know claire friday who was also in our program has been doing a lot of this a lot of uh, the work that she's been trying to promote is explaining to the world why an arts background is valuable. Go to last week's podcast. You can listen to the conversation with Claire. She has a cool TED Talk that's out in the universe about this exact topic, how theater people can really conquer the world. A big part of it is also when you come from that background, being willing to continue to facilitate people who are coming out of it to move into a new area. Um, And I I, I just, you know, I think so much of our responsibility is to ensure that other people can access the things that we accessed. Yes. Yes. And have the chance to to do what they want to do. And if we can help make that happen, do it. (laughs) Do you have other people that in your current office that have theater or music or dance backgrounds who no longer are doing that? Not that I can think of in my current office. A lot of my colleagues were like, did theater in like high school, but I can't think of anyone who had a real theater, professional theater background before coming to the law. Um, I know that they're there. I just don't know them myself. Um, But There, I mean, when I went to law school, a lot of my law school friends, you know, a lot of the people who were involved in the Gilbert and Sullivan Society had spent time doing professional theater. Um, One of my best friends from law school uh, was a very serious violin player for a while. Um, And then she changed courses and did other stuff, but she played violin for the musicals that we did. And, you know, now she works for a firm doing intellectual property. There's a lot of people in the legal community, a lot of former actors, which makes sense. You know, you're used to standing and delivering and being the focus of attention, which a lot of us don't necessarily like. (laughs) So, yeah, it's everything that you did in theater is useful elsewhere. If you had to pick one piece of advice to give to someone who is interested in going into the legal field from the arts, what would it be? I think my advice would be learn. And there's there's a lot of aspects to that. Part of learning is talking with other people who are in the legal community. 
So try to get into contact with people who are doing the kind of work that you would like to do. And I think this goes for anyone trying to move from one field to another. And that can, the, the talking with people, I think, can be really tough if you don't have those connections. And that's where an organization like this can really be helpful. I think part of learning would also be, if you can, go and watch some trials or hearings, because you're mostly going to see hearings, not trials. Almost every courtroom is always open to the public. It's actually, it's generally required by the law. If you go onto your local court's website, there will be a tab called hearings or oral arguments or something like that. And they might have a live stream. A lot of trial courts have live streams right now. Will it continue after COVID? I don't know. All of the United States Supreme Court arguments are posted after the fact. And all of the briefs that are filed in Supreme Court cases are available for free online. For instance, there's a wonderful, wonderful blog called SCOTUS Blog. SCOTUS is the acronym Supreme Court of the United States. So if you go to scotusblog.com, I think it is, your Google SCOTUS blog, they have every single brief in every single case, links to all of the recordings, and they have summaries and analysis about all of them. If you think you want to go into the legal field, I think one of the things you should do is take some time listening to what it's like to be a trial attorney, to be an appellate attorney, read some of the big issues that are coming up right now. And Supreme Court briefs are some of the best, easiest to read, most interesting briefs out there. And, you know, I'm, everyone has heard in the news about some case that probably caught their interest. So look up that case because everything is easier when you're interested in the thing that you're researching. Mm -hmm. My Twitter handle is included. Please feel free to DM me. My messages are open. I have gotten connected with a number of people in the legal community and in law school through that. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, feel free to reach out to me there. I'm always open to talking to people. Your theater background is an asset. It is not a liability. It is an asset. And you just have to, you have to think it's hard. It's hard to, to try and articulate why it's an asset for a particular other field, but it is. And, you know, I think you can take your theater background and go anywhere with it. Don't be afraid to. Don't be afraid to stay in theater if you love theater. Please, please do it. Or the arts. Stay in the arts if that's your passion. Yeah, you really can do anything, whether you want to stay or leave the arts industry. Thank you so much to Ben Jacobson for joining us today on Out of the Arts Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about a transition into the legal profession, we encourage you to engage with Ben on Twitter, at BFJacobson, or connect with him on LinkedIn, linked in the show notes. As always, thank you for listening. If you like today's podcast, make sure to subscribe, share, and tune in next week. And don't forget to come join the conversation at outofthearts.com. Follow us on social media at Out of the Arts for more resources and support. And be back in places same time next week. 
Out of the Arts podcast was created, written, and produced by Beth Partham and Amy Shake. Because we are super excited to flaunt our awesome transferable skills in any way, shape, and form we can. Audio engineering by Beth Partham. And music by Amy Shake. Because if we're still paying on our student loans, we are definitely going to keep trying to use our degrees in the way they were intended. Out of the Arts podcast is copyrighted by Out of the Arts LLC. 2021.